following program contains language and subject matter that you may consider unsuitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Greetings, Earthling. Uh, His Highness the Jackal. The Jackal. And get past the reins to Mr. Jackal, the new king of radio. <laughs> yes. Allow me to puff as well. Mm. Uh, uh, some powerful herbs. <laughs> giving me dark visions. Shall we pack this again? I, I'm not giving visions. I'm not sure if it's working, is it? Visions. Oh. Visions. are you seeing what I'm seeing? You making a fool of yourself. <laughs> you think Jackal's a Latino? I'm not sure, but he'll give it to you again. Hold on one second here. The Jackal. Welcome, everyone, to Inside the Jackal's Head, right here, live on PSN Radio. And tonight, we have the return of one of my favorites. Terry Wickham is on the show tonight with me, folks. That's right, Terry Wickham's going to be on in about 30 minutes, and we're going to talk about a little film that he's working on called Stash. Just read the script for it today, and it's love the script. By the way, that was Taxman by Tim Branham. Love that song. Uh, guys, we're going to have a really fun show tonight. Terry Wickham, of course, was with us uh, when Tim Brennan was on. He called in and joined the show uh, for a little bit, and it's always a lot of fun to have him on. He's a great dude to uh, you know talk about movies and stuff, but I really want to dedicate uh, you know the show to the actual film he's working on because it really was a cool script, a very creepy script. I think you guys are going to like this. It's, uh, it's going to be a really cool little movie. We're going to talk all about it. And remember, just go to psn-radio.com if you want to join the chat room and Got a lot of news uh, to cover. Uh, it's been uh, kind of an active couple of weeks in the news. A lot of crazy stuff been going on. I want to start with some light stuff before I move into some of the, the heavier drama. And uh, I know we started off a little bit late tonight, folks. Uh, unfortunately, had a little technical issue with the uh, with the system here. And we, we had to kind of uh, fix it before we can go live. Uh, but I'm going to read through a couple of stories. I have a couple of really important ones that I wanted to get through real quick. A couple uh, stuff from uh, SuperheroHype.com and uh, some sports-related stuff uh, that's in the news. Again, i got a couple of clips I will play in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to start off with uh, this uh, news report from um, SuperheroHype.com. And uh, it's for anybody who's interested in the, the uh, TV show Gotham, which is going to premiere on the 22nd tomorrow. That's right, Gotham starts tomorrow on Monday on Fox, and um, I haven't seen, uh, you know, much. I've kind of, like, stayed away from this thing. I want to see what it's all about when it's actually airing. I don't want to see the spoilers and all that stuff. i only seen a couple little things here and there, and I wasn't too impressed, I'll say that much, but just uh, a day before Fox and DC Entertainment will be bringing us Gotham, the Batman-inspired series that will explore the dark roots of the worlds of the Cape Crusader and some of the most infamous foes. You might think uh, you've seen it all, but the TV spots in the trailers for the show, just like the turn on the uh, police or procedural fans will witness this fall, we've got an exclusive 3D preview for the series that flips on its head. If you guys want to see this, go to SuperheroHype.com. I'm going to tweet this out. If you guys want to check that out, check out my Twitter account. It's, uh, of course, Twitter.com forward slash The Jackal kind of frustrated with this series because it's you know batman before he's batman so it's it's like smallville all over again but it's even worse because uh, this kid has no superpowers can't do anything cool you know so i don't know how i feel about this this is going to be a, a really tough uh, show for me to get into first of all 
if I do end up getting into it, I'll definitely talk about it more on the show. So uh, the 3D preview is pretty cool, though. I'll say that much. This is about the only preview I've really seen that in one of the trailers uh, before this one. And again, I wasn't too impressed, but this 3D stuff uh, was pretty cool. So if you guys want to check that out, superherohype.com. I'm going to go ahead and uh, tweet that out in a minute here. Um, also, uh, let's see, from superherohype.com. And uh, this is actually something that our good friend 2.0 would be a little bit well, maybe happy about. It. I don't know if I don't know. It depends on how he feels about Robert Orsi. I don't know, Pete. Do you know how um, 2.0 feels about Robert Orsi? I don't think he likes him. Why do you say that? Well, he's not a fan. Has he said whether he likes him or not? I mean, have you guys talked? And has he said uh, whether you guys like you know whether he likes Robert Orsi's work or not? I mean, it, this is kind of an odd uh, situation for Robert Orsi, anywhere an odd movie for him to adapt the Power Rangers. But anyway, it turns out that he's dropping out of uh, the Power Rangers reboot. So it says, Your deadline reported that due to the scheduling for the upcoming Star Trek Three, executive producer Robert Orsi, or Roberto Orsi, has had to drop out of Lionsgate's and Saban's upcoming big-screen reboot of the Power Rangers. Orsi recently uh, completed the first draft of Star Trek Three with co-writer Patrick McKay and J.D. Payne, which will... Will also He will also direct it, by the way, uh, in case you guys didn't know, he's directing Star Trek III. Uh, no release date is uh, currently set for that film, but the expectations is uh, that the new film will land in theaters sometime in 20, 2016, just about the time the franchise hits its 50th anniversary. 50 years of exploring the stars and making nerds happy. Love Star Trek. Uh, screenwriter Zach Sense uh, said here, and Ashley Miller, who uh, wrote X-Men First Class and Thor, will script the upcoming reboot of Power Rangers, which is described as a modern reinvention of the long-running franchise. Yeah, I'm not interested. Sorry, I'm just, you know, I, I never was big on Power Rangers. I'm sorry, I just, I wasn't a fan as a kid, you know, that, and here's the thing, it really wasn't something that was around when I was a kid. That's another thing. Uh, you know, Power Rangers were big when I was already kind of older. So kind of, you know, they just yeah, missed really. So I, I have really no desire to watch the reboot. Unless they, they go like Christopher Nolan on this thing and they make it really gritty and realistic. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work too well. Thank you, Pete. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not interested in, in uh, Power Rangers. But it's cool. They got, you know, good writers. Uh, the people who wrote X-Men First Class and Thor. I mean, that's pretty cool. They're... You know, good writers. They, those are actually two good movies. So, and X Men: First Class was actually the first X Men movie of like the series, not counting the Wolverine or the Origins or Solo Picks or anything like that. But of the group movies that I really enjoyed, I didn't like the first uh, three X Men movies. To be honest, I uh, wasn't a, a huge fan of them. So, uh, when that movie came out, I was like, ah, oh, finally an X Men movie. I right. kind of dig. And, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, at least a good writer team that they put together for this thing. So uh, if you guys want to talk about that, please call on in. Uh, I know 2.0 might be kind of happy about that because I don't think he's a big Roberto Orsi fan. But uh, if I'm wrong, uh, 2.0, let me know. And it's uh, another story here from uh, SuperheroHype.com. Uh, it says here, Supergirl gets a series commitment from CBS. And this is weird because, of course, uh, Supergirl belongs to the DC Universe and Warner Brothers. But following the uh, re- the reveal last week that Supergirl TV that a Supergirl TV series was it actually in fact in development, Deadline reported that CBS has given the series a commitment to the show. Uh, Greg Berlanti of the Arrow and Flash TV shows will be teaming up with Chuck and Ordinary Family producers Ali Adler to write and executive uh, produce the series. The series is said to focus on Supergirl, Superman's cousin, 
Kara Zorel, aka Supergirl, uh, where she begins to use her superpowers, which has been kept hidden for much of her life on Earth. You know, didn't we already see this uh, called? Wasn't this called Smallville? I mean, really, are we just treading water here now? Well, now it's a chick, so it's a little bit different. You know, Jackal. No, no, it's the same. The same crap. I mean, is she not going to be in like the All super? Right. No, what, that, I don't mean it like that, Pete. Calm down. You know what I mean. I mean, like Smallville, we didn't get to see Superman in the uh, Superman suit at all. And, and don't give me that last scene crap. All right, don't give me that crap because that was complete bogus. I mean, that last scene, the shirt reveal, I mean, really? Hey, asshole. This whole time, for 10 years, Tom Welling, the fans are waiting to see you fly off as Superman and do something supermanly at the end of the series. And you give us a shirt reveal. And it looked like a cheap shirt, too, from, like, the mall or something. Hey, asshole! Put on the damn suit. I mean, come on. Ten years, and they couldn't even do that. So, honestly... I don't give a shit anymore. I I stopped caring. When I read stuff like that, I just... I don't care. I really just don't care anymore. Look, the deal not only mirrors Fox's uh, Gotham series and the commitment from last season, but it also means that DC Entertainment has now uh, now has comic-based TV series on every major network, not including the Disney-owned ABC, which, of course, they also own Marvel, so there's no way in hell they're going to get a DC franchise on there. It's just not going to happen. Um, the cousin of the Man of Steel himself, Supergirl, was previously adapted into feature film in 1984, often considered one of the worst superhero films ever starring Helen uh, Slater as the character. Laura Vandervolt later appeared as the uh, character in the CW's uh, Smallville, which I talked about briefly there. In uh, the later seasons, uh, she came on the show, of course, which wasn't in the suit or anything. A number of the characters have taken on the name of Supergirl in the, in the source material comics with some ranging as far back as the 1950s. So what do you think of Supergirl and the announcement of the new TV show? You know, let us know. Comment. Call in. I mean, well, don't call in when I got Terry on, because that's not cool. But uh, I'm I'm not too uh, excited about DC on TV right now. It's just, eh, it kind of looks all kind of crappy. He's an actor who hasn't done anything good since Patton. And a priest who was stereotyped 17 years ago and hasn't worked since. No New okay. Creative Ideas Productions presents... Excrement 3. She double sings. Starring George C. Scott, some guy whose name we can't remember, and Roseanne Barr as Beelzebub. Excrement 3. Alright. That's about right when it comes to... Uh, you know, this these DC properties. They're just not interesting at all. I mean, I have no interest in watching uh, Supergirl. I'm sorry. I, I just ain't, you know. Unless they get a really hot blonde. Then maybe, I'll, maybe, okay, maybe I'll change my mind. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll change my mind at that point. Maybe not. I don't know. Moving on, I got, like I said, a couple of sports-related articles that I want to get to also. This deals with some nastiness has been going on in the NFL. As you guys know, uh, there's you know two players, Ray Rice and uh, Peterson, or, or you know, who were just uh, completely off their rockers and are, are kicked out of the league at this point. Uh, Roger Cadell, the, uh, the the NFL commissioner, has been under hot fire. and Because I spit hot fire. Really, I mean, this guy should resign at this point. 
they're giving them a lot of grief over what's been going on with domestic abuse and child abuse and all that stuff and the way they've handled these two cases. Now, Rachel Nichols refused to let Roger Goodell off the hook in a recent interview. Check this out. Rachel Nichols won the Roger Goodell press conference, and uh, this is pretty funny. The NFL commissioner addressed uh, reports on Friday afternoon regarding domestic violence and the league's new conduct policy. After a prepared statement, Goodell took questions from approximately 30 minutes. He took questions. And that's when Nichols, who grilled Floyd Mayweather last week, by the way, um, about his history with domestic violence, uh, put on a journalistic clinic, guys. Her first question was about the balance of power in the league office when it comes to uh, discipline. Check this out. She said, you've had a pretty extreme unilateral power in deciding discipline, but as you said a few times, you've gotten it wrong in a few cases. And that tends to happen when there's no checks and balances. How willing are you to give up some of that power? And do you think that would be the right thing for you to do? Great question. Roger Goodell said in reply, everything is on the table. We're going to make sure that we look at every aspect of how we gather information to make a decision, how to make that decision, and then the appeals process and all of that that is on the table and all of that that is important information that we want outside experts to give us perspectives on and see if there's a better way to do it. We believe that there is. We believe we need it. We can continue to operate like this. Nichols had a follow-up question and noted that the prosecutor's office in Ray Rice's case said that they don't have any records of the NFL asking for video information. In fact, also you mentioned on TV last week that you tried to get the Ray Rice video on any information. The Atlantic City Prosecutor's Office, in an open records check, says that they don't have any electronic communication from the NFL asking for those records or those kind of documents or the video. Uh, Can you give us uh, a sort of trail? of how you guys did that investigation so people can really know what you put into it. And uh, Roger Goodell said, Our security department works with law enforcement. They're fully cooperative. We gather almost entirely all of our information through law law enforcement. And that's something uh, else that we're going to look at. That's something else. You know, is that the right process? Should all of our information be gathered through the law enforcement? You know, we understand and respect what they go through and the job that they have to do and there are certain restrictions that they might be under That's what, that was his answer later Nichols took Goodell to, to task once more questioning the integrity of hiring ex-FBI director Robert Mueller's law firm uh, Nichols said and Commissioner you mentioned Robert Mueller's investigation as a key to solving all of these issues now I'm not going to sit here and discuss the integrity of uh, the ex-director of the FBI I can leave that as a given Uh, that he's a man of integrity, but the law firm that he works for and will help him carry out this investigation is a law firm with extremely close ties to the NFL. You guys paid that law firm recently to help you negotiate some television deals. The president of the Ravens, who will be a key in this whole investigation, worked at that law firm for 30 years. Why hire somebody with even the appearance of impropriety, and how do you expect this to affect everything? Roger Goodell's answer was, well, Rachel, I would respectfully disagree because you now are questioning the integrity of the FBI. But part of the idea of this, I guess, is to restore public trust. So even if he does a flawless investigation, isn't there an element there of your leaving the door open to doubt? Nichols' questions received instant praise and adulation on Twitter as the reporter was lauded for not letting Goodell off the hook. Again, folks... 
the one woman had the biggest cojones of everybody involved. And check out some of these tweets. Everybody, uh, this is from Stephen Nesbitt. He put uh, on Twitter, everybody, please send in your three stars. Number one, Rachel Nichols. Number two, TMZ guy. Number three, Benji from Howard Stern Show. There you go. That's the three stars of this thing. Uh, Bill Simmons said, Rachel Nichols is the best. The best. Eric Stengel said, Rachel Nichols is NFL press conference MVP. And Ryan Nanny said, Rachel Nichols, you have my vote for NFL commissioner. How about that, huh? She should be the NFL commissioner. Hell, she's, you know, has some more integrity than the uh, the actual commissioner now, Roger Goodell. So there you go. The one woman in the room has the biggest cojones of all those guys in there to ask the hard questions, not let this guy off the hook. Again, Roger Goodell, you need to step down. This whole thing with, uh, you know, Ray Rice and... You know, Peterson, uh, this is disgusting. Look, you have domestic violence. Uh, you have Adrian Peterson beating his son. I mean, look, I, I've gotten spanked. We've all gotten spanked in our lives uh, by our parents. But what happened to his kid, what he did to his kid is crossing that line of child abuse. And I know that, you know, idiots out here uh, are going to try to make it seem like, well, you know, this is part of our culture. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a black thing. We, we beat our kids. And I'm talking to you, Charles Barkley. I mean, he, you know, he's a, he's really a dumbass, and a lot of the things he says in the media is questionable to begin with. Uh, but I think he really did step over the line on this one. Check this clip out, everybody. This is dealing with the Adrian Peterson case and the Ray Rice case, really all together, the NFL, and um, you know their stance on domestic violence and child abuse. Jim Rome really takes Charles Barkley to task on this, on the child abuse aspect of uh, the Adrian Peterson uh, case, and we're going to talk about that. As soon as we come back from this clip, check this out. Recognized nationally syndicated radio and TV host Jim Rome and from Turner Sports Basketball Hall of Famer Charles Barkley. Jim. All right, JB, thanks. Charles, you look at the week and it starts off with a graphic video of Ray Rice hitting a woman. And then the week ends with Adrian Peterson getting arrested for hitting a child. This could not have gone any worse for the Shield this week. What are your thoughts? Well, I want to, Tony had a great point. The NBA, NFL obviously fumbled the entire Ray Rice situation, but we are bringing awareness to domestic abuse. That's a good thing. And, and Bart just said something interesting. Most men would not ever try to get any type of mental help if they felt like they needed. So those are two positives that can come out of this. Uh, listen, you can't hit a woman. Uh, I feel bad that that, that, that tape was ever shown. Ray Rice made a tragic mistake, and he has to live with that. But I do hope some owner has the courage, and it's going to take tremendous courage to give Ray Rice another chance. What about the other? Can you hit a child? Uh, I'm from the South. Uh, I understand boomers' rage and anger. But I think, listen, we have to accept we were born, and he's a white guy, I'm a black guy. I don't know where he's from. I'm from the South. Whipping is, uh, we do that all the time. Every black parent in the South is going to be in jail under those circumstances, I think uh, we have to be careful letting people how we they dictate how they you know treat their. Chuck, doesn't matter where you're from. Right is right and wrong is no, wrong. No, well, matter where well, you're from. I, I don't. I don't believe that because listen, we spank kids in the South. Uh, I think the question about did Adrian Peterson go overboard? But listen, Jim, we all grew up in different environments. Listen, every black parent in my neighborhood in the South would be in trouble or in jail 
under those circumstances. Listen, my, my thing is, I don't want to tell anybody how to raise their kids, and I really don't want anybody telling me how to raise my kids. No. But let's make a distinction between child rearing and child abuse. And that's a very that was child abuse. There's no that, fine line here. Uh, I think there's a fine line. Jim, I've had many welts on my legs in last week. Welts? Weeks. Like that? Young yes. Oh, yeah. I've got beat with switches. And I hate to use... First of all, I don't even like the term. You know, when the media talks about it, and somebody just said something on television, beating a child... Listen, we don't. But that's what that was, though, Chuck. Uh, yeah, we well, saw the well, we call it spanking, uh, or, or we call it spanking, or whipping our kids. Uh, if I see open wounds and bruises throughout a body, that is a beating. Sure, I, I think th those pictures are disturbing. Maybe in, I think Adrian said he went overboard. But as far as being from the South, we all spanked our kids. Uh, I, I got spanked. Me and my two brothers. But then, Chuck, not now, right? I mean, that 1964 is one thing; 2014 is another. Uh, and that's Maybe fair. we need to rethink this. Uh, may, and I totally agree with that. Maybe we need to rethink. It, but I think we have to really be careful. You know, this just proves how dumb Charles Barkley really can be. I mean, honestly, this is just about the most ignorant stuff uh, ever. And, of course, he's bringing up, uh, they're talking about the Adrian Peterson uh, case. Now, switching from one domestic violence case, uh, the Ray Rice case, to this Adrian Peterson uh, scandal. This is crazy. He, of course, beat up his kid, uh, put a kind of marks on him. The Minnesota Vikings uh, placed Peterson on the exempt commissioner's permission list early Wednesday morning. With the decision, Peterson is now barred from all activities as he faces child abuse charges. The 29-year-old has an arraignment scheduled for October 8th. If, he, if he's found guilty, Peterson can be sentenced up to two years in prison, and I hope he gets it. I really do. I hope they throw the book at him. Uh, you know, one thing is to spank your kid. I was spanked as a kid. Every kid gets spanked. Uh, I saw some of these pictures, man. This is just really, really messed up. Uh, you just don't hit your kid like that. And that old excuse, oh, well, you know, they raised us like that. That's not a, a real excuse for beating your child like that. I mean, there's no excuse for that kind of abuse at all. And, uh, you know, Char Charles Barkley should be ashamed of himself at this point. Every time he opens his mouth, he just looks more and more like a idiot. Really does. Guys, we're going to go on a quick commercial break. Uh, we're going to be back with Terry Wickham on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about the movie Stash, which he's going to be shooting. Or is shooting. I'm not too sure. We'll find out. TalkStream Live, man. Get it right. Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes. That George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fella. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Remember, Future Theater can be heard every Monday night at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern, with your host, Bill, that's me and Nancy, I, Caramba, Burns, and we are broadcasting live right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Breaking the walls down. This is radio. This is what people want. To download the podcast, make sure you go to www.futuretheater.com. Everybody, we're back on Inside the Jackal's Head right here on PSN Radio and SoFlo Radio. Of course, the sounds you're listening to right now is a little creepy, isn't it? A little scary sounding. Well, that's the sounds you're going to hear from the upcoming movie. Short film? I don't know what you want to call it, but it's uh, from director Terry Wickham. And he's on the line with us. Terry, welcome back to Inside the Jackal's Head. It's been such a long time since we've heard from you. Oh, thank you, Jack. It's nice to talk again. <laughs> yeah, you, of course you were on. Uh, I just teased. You were on with uh, Tim Branham uh, briefly uh, when he when he was on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, but it's always fun to have you on, man. Uh, thank you for being on here and love the script. I just went through this thing uh, today. Stash is the name of the script, and it's awesome. Uh, tell us a, a, a little bit about the script, man. Tell us about how you got involved with uh, with this project. 
I guess if you go back about a year and a, uh, I guess about a year and three quarters, um, I'd say spring of 2013, uh, Thad Bird contacted me from Seattle, a good friend of mine for almost 30 years. And he basically had been working on a movie with these two guys who got two films released back to back. And, you know, all of us film independent micro-budget horror filmmakers are always trying to figure out a way to get our movies made. And, and he talked to these two guys and he said, how did you guys get these two movies released? And they said, if you make a found footage movie for as little money as possible, somebody will buy it. Yep. So he thought about it and he came up with this idea where instead of one director raising money or having the resources to make an entire feature film by himself, if he contacted like four or five other directors and they came up with the money or resources for their own movie and put them all together as one film with a unifying theme that it would be so much easier. And so he was the first, I was the first person he contacted and, but he had a little criteria. He said the movie had to be found footage techniques. So it couldn't be a movie movie. Right. It had to be iPhone, video camera, security camera, whatever. And it had to revolve around the devil. Because he had this idea that a title, he had a title on his head called Devil's Five. Right. Five movies revolving around the devil. And this so is your, said, your little portion of that bigger picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and um, he also he had a couple of other criteria. He said, you know, it's got to be about 20 minutes in length. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to have the money or resources to make it. It's got to be devil sound footage. And he said, and because I like the movie that you made with Tim Clark called Hair of the Dog, I would like him to write the story that you make. So he said, what do you think? And I thought about it for about five seconds, and I said, well, I don't know what Tim's going to say, but <laughs> yes, I, I, I'd like to be in. So I contacted Tim, and uh, Tim had maybe six months before this time, the fall of 2012, I'd say, had called me up. He had been on business in Spain, in Madrid, and he had said that he was doing this smartphone-applicated scavenger hunt called geocaching. And he said, you know, and I said, well, I never, I never, I don't know what that is. And in fact, at the time, I didn't have a smartphone. It's one of those guys who refused to get one for a long time. And he said, well, it's this game that probably 20 million people play where it gives you clues on your phone and it uses GPS to take you to a certain location. could be anywhere in the entire world, probably all over your neighborhood even. And you find these little items that people hide. And you just usually write your name or piece of paper or you log in the website so you found it. So he says, usually it's just a fun kind of a game. And while they're on this business trip, him and his friend went on a geocache and they end up going someplace kind of a little spooky and all the abandoned building, whatever. And they find this thing and the guy that hit it jumped out and scared him. He says, which never happens. The person's usually never there, of course. Right. But this guy jumped out and scared him. So he said to me, I think there's a story there. Not, not necessarily what happened to him, but using a phone as a device to tell a scary story. So I thought about it. And I remember that day when I was talking to him, I said, I was thinking to myself, I thought, that is a great idea, but it who is. would be behind it? And so as I thought about it a little bit, I remember thinking I got this image for the, with the devil. If the devil was controlling this and using it on a mass scale, you know, that that would be really creepy. And I got this one scene in my mind. I told Tim about it, loved it. Uh, I actually told Thad about it. And that was before Thad came up with this idea for this movie. So flash forward, like I said, six months, Thad asked me to do this film, devil related, found footage. 
So I called Tim up and I said, Tim, what do you think? And Tim at first wanted to use one of maybe his other story ideas because he's written a bunch of other scripts that, you know, are ready to go but not made. And all of them I didn't think would relate to what Thad said with Devil. And so I said to him, what about the idea you told me about six months ago about the geocache? And he goes, yes. So, you know, there was no story completely figured out. Right. Tim came up with that. So so what you read in the script, you know, Tim wrote that. And he came up with that. And, um, you know, when he did it's, the first it's version... It's well script, written. It's really, really oh, thank well you. written. Yeah, it's really good. Thank you. Tim's got that Tim's got that really nice style. He's very witty. He usually tries to inject humor. Did you find any of it humorous at all? You know, it's pretty serious. Yeah, no, there was a couple parts, especially early in the beginning where they're all celebrating because, you know, they, they hit their goal in the church. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, there's a couple yeah. parts in there that were pretty amusing. Uh, but I really like the character, the characterization early on, you know, and the way it builds up to what happens at the end. Uh, like I told you, oh, in private, you, I mean, this could be fleshed out into a, a movie by itself. That's how good this is. I mean, I know it's part <laughs> of a, of a bigger picture, and I, I'm dying to see how this fits into like whatever else they're you know they're building for this movie. But uh, this could be a, a, an entire film on its own. It's really well written. Oh, thank you, thank you. And you know, Tim, Tim and I had, of course, um, as well as Thad, had seen some of those other anthology films that have been made, mm. made uh, found footage like VHS, and obviously the sequel VHS two, and you know, you have a couple other ones like that, and Though we liked certain stories in those films, we thought that maybe the weakest part was the what we call the connecting device, you know, what connects mm. all the movies together. And, I mean, the fact is there were other movies that used VHS tapes before VHS to tell that same story. Um, right. So that kind of already been done. I mean, it's kind of hard to be new. Everything's kind of been done, but yeah. I guess it's the way you go about it. <laughs> the yeah, way you go uh, about it. But, but uh, you know, so when we, when we came up with this one, um, uh, Thad's original idea was kind of similar actually to VHS. It was about, you know, having these DVDs that you find these stories and, and it was kind of an, the one thing I always had a problem with, and we're kind of maybe jumping away from stash, but we, yeah, we're talking about devil's five. One of my problems I had with most of these movies was from a conceptual idea. They were really small. If you, if you look at the idea of VHS, you know, this house with these tapes and it, I just never thought that it opened up the, the conceptual idea of, of being bigger. And, right. you know, usually because you don't have money, you think you can't do that. And I thought maybe right. we could try to break that. So I came up with an idea instead. I don't want to give too much away where we start off the movie with this car chase and this guy's in this black BMW and we're watching it from a dashboard cam of a cop car. And there's this high pursuits at night, you know, the road's going real fast. There's ends up being a roadblock. Because, you know, with sound footage, you don't have to have a motivated shot. Well, where's right. that camera shooting? In my case, it was a dashboard of one cop car, and then we have a dashboard of another cop car, the one that sets the roadblock and the one that's pursuing the car. And, you know, when they come up and there's a chase, and then there ends up being this uh, pretty intense scene with suspense of where the car finally stops. I guess I shouldn't say too much more, but you find out the guy in the car is carrying something it relates with the whole rest of the movie. It's not what you would expect. And his character, the way you see him, is not going to be what he ultimately ends up being. So I had all these things where I tried to twist things. When I told the fat, he's like, oh, my God, that just opens up everything. And I tried to just make <laughs> yeah. it bigger, you know, even though, truthfully, we didn't know how much money we'd have. But I thought, you know, let's kind of go for this thing. And I'm a fan of you know Jim Cameron. So I try mm. to get, like, a little bit of the action interjected with the, the horror and stuff. So... I mean, I'm not Jim Cameron, but I try to inject that kind of a style at times, you know? <laughs> well, if you're going to look up to anybody, that's a pretty good person to look up to. I mean, 
pretty damn good work in his resume. Uh, it, it, this is an interesting project. Uh, when are you going to start shooting this thing? Well, well, Stash has already been shot. Um, oh, it's we already been shot. Movie. Okay. Yeah, we, we we were the first film. You know, we started, like I said, uh, the spring of 2013 is when Thad approached me. It took us a little while to find the directors, the other directors. I mean, you know, there's no uh, there's no list out there that says, here, pick this guy. So we had to find guys that could, one, uh, want to work with the situation we were in, where there wasn't money set. They'd have to bring their own stuff on the table or raise it through Indiegogo or Kickstarter or whatever. Right. And, or if they were independently wealthy. So we had to do a little of a search on that. And that actually led to, um, well, we had brought... Uh, uh, a friend of mine named Brian Weiss, uh, who's no longer with us, actually. He passed away in March. But Brian was working on Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Oh, wow. And while he was, at, yeah, while he was in New York, he's a, he's a, he was an amazing stuntman, producer, director. And while he was in New York shooting Spider-Man 2, we had breakfast. And he said, what are you doing? I mentioned Devil's Five. Told him a little about the wraparound idea. He said, I want it. I want to direct one of them. And he lived, he lived in Dallas. So he said, how about you? And I t at the time, we actually didn't know what story he could take because we were talking to uh, Patrick Ray in uh, Kansas about possibly doing a film and a couple of the directors. Uh, Patrick ultimately couldn't do it because he's directing another film. But So I said to him, well, I don't know movies available, but I said there's the wraparound. And at the time, I was going to direct Stash and the wraparound. So what ended up happening was Brian said, but I said to Brian, I said, if you want to come on, I'll give up the wraparound to you. So he said, that'd be cool. If he wrote it, I'd direct it. Fortunately, he had cancer for like the last five years, and, and in March, he passed away. So, Oh, my. That's terrible. Yeah, it really sucked. Um, great guy. Loved him as a friend. Never never got the chance to actually work with Brian. I mean, back in 04, I ended up getting hired to direct a movie called Waterfalls, which was going to be a huge film for me, personally. It was a $6 million Hollywood film, L.A., Directors Guild, SAG. LL Cool J, Vivica Fox, Dennis Leary were set to star in it. They were talking to Busta Rhymes, all these other people. And I, I had worked on that movie for a year and a half to make it. And it would have changed my life probably if, if they ever got the money, but they never did. But Brian was the stunt coordinator on the film, and that's how we became friends. And so uh, we never got to make that film, and we've been in contact over the years. And Brian was actually going to produce my movie Anomaly. And unfortunately, now that's not going to happen, but Hopefully the film will happen. Brian won't be a part of it, but you know, so that sucks. So then we had to get someone else mm. to direct a wraparound and all that stuff. But anyway, so Stash went first. We so shot, how many projects have, have how many have been shot already uh, for the movie? Only one. We were the first one to go. Stash, um, okay. Which is which is pretty amazing. We we had a, uh, you probably I don't know if you remember or saw it, but we had an Indiegogo campaign mm -hmm. back in May and June. Yeah, and we uh, we didn't raise quite enough money that we really wanted. Uh, we were going for twenty thousand, and we only got twenty five hundred. You know, so it ended up being a lot less. But that's actually not the true budget. I mean, we had people come on after that. That not only would if you were paying people increase the budget, but we had we need locations that someone came on later to pay for hmm. insurance. They came that's on cool. later. You know, food, we had all these restaurants donate all our meals. Uh, Tim got the first weekend in Jersey. I got the next weekend in Manhattan and the weekend after that in uh, Long Island. So, you know, if you actually, it's probably actually we spent about eight to 10000 It's probably actually like an $80,000 film if everyone was to get paid. 
Um, so that gives you a little idea. But to me, that never equates to how good a movie is. I mean, right. honestly, you could have $250 million, it could be a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah, it really true. doesn't... The, the, budget, the money doesn't ever equate to anything other than how you make a movie, you know? No, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite movies of all times is the movie Kids. Remember that movie? Yes. And, I mean, that was done on a shoestring budget. I mean, it, it's a great movie. Uh, Clerks is another one. Done for, I don't know how many, a few thousand dollars? And oh, how, Kevin you know, Smith. Yeah, that, yeah, great movie. That was excellent. That was excellent. Yeah, so so we shot Stash in uh, July, and now we're in post-production on it. And I believe uh, Thad is doing his film in November. I think George Brianca, his Indiegogo campaign is actually right now. They just opened up last week. Do you mm. think he's shooting about the end of October, November? And I think Edwin... Figueroa, who is my director of photography, is shooting, I think, in December. And then the wraparound um, is going to be in February. And Thad was originally going to take the reins from Brian, but has since asked me to direct it because he said, since I wrote it and I'm closer to it, he wants to produce it and I'm going to direct it. So car chases, hospitals, police stations, it's got all kinds of crazy stuff. So, oh, that's uh, cool. Yes, all four directors are actually going to work on that. I'm going to direct it. That that and George are going to produce it, and Edwin's going to shoot it. That's going to be awesome. And, I mean, are we going to uh, see this uh, straight to video? How how are you guys going to release the the film once it's finished? Well, you know, it's a a hard question to answer, obviously, before we get to that point, but we're going to try to do everything. I I mean, you know, the ultimate goal is to have it everywhere in every medium possible, VOD, pay per view, Blu ray, DVD. Pay, you know, pay channels, you know, cable vision, Showtime, right. HBO, you know, Netflix. I, I Hulu, tell you, all it, that if it's really good and original, I mean, would you think of maybe a theatrical release? Because found footage movies do really well in theaters now. Look at the Paranormal I mean, Activity would be, series. That, that, that would be a dream come true. I, Based on the way the market kind of is now, I would think that's kind of doubtful. I mean, unless we got lucky like a Paranormal Activity or something like that. Um I, I would have my huge doubts about it just because you don't see it often like that. But I mean, I love it, but I, I don't really expect that. I think it's probably more likely to go a smaller avenue. But who knows? Maybe we get lucky. Maybe we hit like a Blair Witch or a Paranormal. You right. know? Who knows? But that that's so rare. You know. No, it is. But I think you know theatrically, they're always looking for that next you know surprise hit in found footage. Uh, they're even talking about doing a, a Friday the Thirteenth uh, found footage movie. Oh, really? I that, yeah, I don't know how that works. <laughs> well, they got to do something because the last two uh, last two films they made were pretty bad. So <laughs> yeah, I mean they're trying something different at least. But uh, you know the found footage stuff. Do you think there's going to come a point though, uh, honestly, that people are going to get tired of it? Because I mean it is pretty popular. So uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, that's come out that is found footage in the last few years. Oh yeah, I I, I think they're already at that point. To be honest with you, I think uh, that people are already sick of it. And one of the things I was doing when I'm when you know I was thinking about this film was how could I play by the rules, so to speak, yet mm. break them. So right. I tried to do things that were. Um, I think if you know what found footage is, and you've seen the films that are found footage, and if you know the rules, then you can break them. And I think that that's what's going to keep people's interest at this point. I mean, I had no interest in having that shaky Blair Witch you know, crappy camera work. I, I had no interest in that. I also didn't want someone to watch my movie and say, wow, this, this looks like some kid that just walked out of film school off the street <laughs> made this. I didn't want it to look like that. I wanted someone to say, wow, who the hell made this movie? Oh my God, this looks incredible. So 
I wasn't going for that. That, and then there's another thing that me and Thad have talked about quite a bit. You know, and I just watched a movie the other night that had this. Um, you know, if you look at today's cameras, even cameras on iPhones and oh, they're you know smartphones, high definition, 1080p. I mean, they're they're recording on high def, man. Yeah. Yeah, and and the and the one thing that I can't stand is when you see all these video artifacts, color bars, you know, snow, uh, you know, weird things floating around. Honestly, you do not see that. You take right. your camera out right now and film something, and you tell me mm-hmm. if your camera is going to do it. And no one edits on VHS anymore, so you're not going to see those color bars. Everyone's right. got digital editing. The computer does not put that on. So right. when I see that in VHS, when I see that in VHS too, when I see it in Oliver Stone's son movie, Greystone Park, when I see it in the mm-hmm. movie I just watched the other night, Devil Incarnate, that is inaccurate. It doesn't look like that. So to me, it's such a false move by the directors. And honestly, it's stupid. Mm-hmm. If you make I that agree. kind of a choice, as a director, if you make that kind of, because when me and Frank were, my friend Frank were watching Devil Incarnate the other night, and it started being color bars and stuff, I'm like, come on, stop that crap. Just now was that said? In, was that said in like today, or was that said like like ten years ago, fifteen years? Because I mean, it depends also on the the time era that the footage is from. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It, it was set today. Oh, okay. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm sitting there watching. It. I'm like, cut that crap out. <laughs> I was tired of it. And it. Only thing it does was annoys me. You know. So I just said, let's not have none of that crap in our film. No snow color. Get that crap out because it it's not real. And me and mm-hmm. Frank were even saying. If you had a camera that created that kind of crap on your picture, don't you think you might say, there's something wrong with my camera. I better go get this fixed because it's creating this crappy imagery. So I just think that's such a stupid move on the directors and filmmakers mm-hmm. that make, yep. they use it, you know what I mean? I wonder, you know, I wonder why, especially in like big budget movies, you know, I wonder why nobody's brought that up because that is such an excellent point to make. I mean, you really do get clear video now with a lot of these smartphones, and it's not just like this year this is starting. I mean, I had a a great smartphone that had high definition two years ago, three years ago. So there's no excuses anymore, really. Well, well, well what I think it is is I think that they think I the think audience is stupid. That's well, what it is. I, I think that. I, I actually, well, they might think that, but I think the audience is actually smart. I think. I oh, I agree, I agree, but I think they think the audience is dumb, but I, you know, I don't think the audience is dumb either. So. Yeah, and, it, and it's a, it's a foolish mistake on the filmmakers. I mean, because, to, I mean, look, look what I was saying when I'm watching. I'm like, what is this crap? You know, it's not like that. So, I think that the filmmakers are not visionary enough, and they don't have the balls to go outside the box and think on their own. They're just kind of copying especially when something worked and they think that this is kind of a formula for success. So they're just playing by the rules. And that's the problem we have with all of Hollywood, really. Everyone's trying to do the same thing, especially if it's, you know, successful. So I think that, and that's, that's a real problem. I think in the whole climate of filmmaking today is that, (laughs) you know, back in the, back in the seventies, especially you had these guys doing things unique and different. Everybody just kind of rolling with the, it's like, I hate to say it, but, you know, you see people that want to copy each other. So, and I, and I hate to say it, but I think even things like social media, like Facebook, Twitter, I mean, Twitter, what is Twitter? You're following people. You don't right. have a lot of leader. You don't have people leading. No one wants to be ahead and lead the pack. They want to be behind someone else. So, you know, I, sure, I love all the social media ways, especially it can expose people to your work and films and music, et cetera, and that's very important. 
but don't be the same as everybody else. Think outside the box, you know? So that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I'm not going to do that crap. I mean, that's not the way it is. So right off the bat, I was against that stuff. And plus, you know, I'm a journalist. So I review a lot of movies and I see all these films and there's a lot of sound footage crap that I get. And I see how bad it is. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So it kind of gives me a little bit of advantage too, because I see a lot of the stuff that's out there. As a filmmaker, I mean, you get frustrated, I'm sure, when you see, uh, you know, these mistakes happen when you're watching a movie. I mean, even as a, just a, as a movie core, I, when I see, you know, as a movie core myself, when I see something like that, and I pick up on that kind of stuff also, by the way, but, you know, like the Blair Witch stuff, I mean, the, the campaign they had for that movie, uh, where they actually were saying the actors were really uh, dead and this and that, and they weren't actors. You know, they had that, they had, they had that whole BS campaign, like it was real found footage. And then you go on, you go on, on like IMDb or some movie website, and you see the actors are alive and they're actors, and you're like, why you gotta lie, man? Like just it's pointless. But you know, it's stuff like that that kind of like irks me, man. I mean, how frustrated is that for you? Yeah, you know, it. You know, in terms of Blair, which is very frustrating. And I was, I guess, I was kind of, I don't know if the right word is fortunate or not, but when that movie came out, I was writing reviews for fearsmag.com. I was their main DVD reviewer. We're talking about 1999. 1999. Mm -hmm. So because we were a a pretty well-known internet publication, uh, we would get advanced screenings. So Blair Witch came out in uh, the summer of 99. I think it was July. We saw that in an advanced screening in March. You know, we'd heard Sundance that was a big they made all the big stink and Sundance and all that. So we got this advanced screen in Manhattan, and I went with a couple guys from Fears Mag. There was only probably 10 of us in the room. We watched Blair Witch. So at the time we saw it, the marketing campaign wasn't really in, in place. So we just saw the movie straight. Right. And I remember as I was watching it, and we got to the end, I, I really liked the setup. I thought it had a great setup. It had me interested, all the people talking in the town, this and that. Then all of a sudden we get out in the woods and the stuff starts happening, all the shaking cam and all that. By the end of the movie, I was actually waiting for something to really happen. I, th- I thought there should be some point, like, you should see something. And that's right. that's probably my biggest complaint with sound footage movies is because the Blair Witch actually never showed you anything, I mean, it didn't. They showed the kid in, in the corner of the room and all that stuff. But since right. they showed you nothing, I think that all these other films, I just watched this Bigfoot one about a month ago, where it was, I think it was called Chasing a Legend or something like that. And as I'm watching for 10 minutes into it, I'm like, they're not going to show you anything in this movie. I bet you there's no, they never show you the Bigfoot. And they don't. No so problem. That's, yeah, the other, yeah. that's, that, that's the thing with sound footage is mm-hmm. they just don't, they figure, you know, less is more, so let's not give them anything. And yeah. I think you've got to give the audience, you know, Shyamalan at times had problems with that, where you really wanted something to happen, whether it was the end of, the village or, you know, signs or whatever. There's always something you really wanted a little bit more at the very end. And um, I think he kind of sometimes didn't deliver that. But when we were doing Devil's Five, we said, let's deliver the goods. Let's make sure that people don't say, well, wait a second, they never gave us anything. Uh, we're going we're gonna to give you something. I don't know how big or, you know, based on our situation, but we're going to give you something for sure. We're not going to walk, you're not walking away scratching your head, wondering what the heck that all meant. You know what I mean? Right. Now, your portion of the, uh, I mean, what I read in status here, that's going to be like, what, 25, 27 minutes, we said, uh, in, in the actual film. What's the running time of the entire movie, Devil's Five? Do you know what's it going to be yet? Or? Well, I, I would assume, I would guess, and I've read all the scripts, I would guess that they're all probably going to end up around 20 minutes, 20, 20 25 minutes each. 
And if he times that by five, he's got basically a hundred minute movie. So, you know, the wraparound, which I wrote, like I said, it's kind of a strange division of time because it's not a whole film straight. You know, he's got probably an eight minute beginning, two and a half between one and two, two and a half between two and three, two and a half between three and four, and then probably another eight minutes at the end. So it ends up being about 23, 25 minutes. So that's about the, all the entire length. I think Edwin's actually might be the shortest one. George's might be the longest one. So it kind of evens out. Um, but what I will tell you, what's really great about Devil's Five is that they all bring something very different to the table. They're not mm. similar. Even though they're oh, okay. about the devil, right. um, you know, some of them get really violent. Some of them have a nudity, sex. Other ones are more subdued. I mean, it's really got a... And, and, and the one thing I think that's really cool about them as well is at some point all of them have a dose of humor. Um, and I think that's important too. I'm not saying that they're funny because I, I don't think that they're... They're not something you'll laugh at, but you might right. laugh with at times. And, right, you know, right. it's for, in terms of suspense and tension, sometimes you might need that to have the audience give a little breather before they go back into the uh, darkness, you know? No, I got you. Now, the devil in the series or in all these uh, movies are, is going to be the same devil, like same uh, character throughout the, you know, the whole thing. Would he, will we see the demon at all at any point or the devil at all at any point and will he look the same but we see him in multiple pictures uh, how are you guys addressing that uh, well we, we definitely you're definitely going to see the devil in different forms okay. within all the different movies and then there will be one unifying devil that kind of gotcha. connects it all so, so uh, and you know we, we figured that the devil also I mean just common sense that the devil if you even go back to the history and religion and all that the devil can appear in different ways Right. And, you know, depending on what it wants to achieve and stuff. So we have the devil kind of a lot of different ways, but it seems to be in, I think if I really think out these movies, um, kind of takes a, a female form quite a bit. <laughs> huh. It'll be an interesting scene, like in the one of the very last scenes. Um, there's a scene where you show the devil and you show like little artifacts from each one of the stories that show up in the scene. Just little things so you can really connect it like in, in a visual sense, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the other thing that we're trying to do, too, that I think is really cool is we're actually going to, I don't know if I should let too much out of the bag, but we're actually going to have some oh, of the Oh, we love spoilers here, so go ahead. We yeah, love yeah, I don't want to get too much. <laughs> but you might see some of the characters cross into the wraparound, which uh, I don't there we see. Go. Uh, you're okay. going to see, I think you're even going to see the filmmakers appear within the wraparound. So the guys making cool. these movies were actually going to be in it. So we're we're really trying to make it not... See, one of the problems I have with a lot of these anthology films is it looks like five guys that made a movie or four guys or three guys, and they didn't couldn't do anything with the movie. And so, you know what? Let's just put these together. They have no relation, right. no connection. These are going to be threaded together. That's cool. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Go. You saw, have you seen that movie? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's you know uh, this is a little bit obviously it's found footage is a little bit different than that but that kind of reminds me a little bit of what they try to do with that movie go and movies like that in pulp fiction where they have a bunch of different stories and then they connect them all you know somehow uh but this yeah. sounds really really interesting because it's found footage and is you know in the horror genre yeah yeah I, I, and i i like when they can cross that stuff over and even yeah. if it's not a found footage movie uh, one of my favorite directors to do that in movies not found footage or anthologies is Tom Twyker from Germany. I mean, if you look at Run, Lola, Run, or, you know, Winter Sleepers, or, you know, Princess yeah. and the Warrior, 
he's always got these unrelated characters that cross mm. paths, and it they seem at first like there's no reason or rhyme why it happens. It ends up being like huge payoff to the what happens in the end of the movie. So I just love the way he does it, where it's very subtle and it's not hitting you over the head, and then also later on just wallops you at the end. So uh, he's one of my favorite directors, and I love the way he does that in his films. Yeah, Run Little and Run is a great movie, by the way. If anybody hasn't seen that, download it. Oh yeah, buy buy it on DVD or Blu-ray immediately. It's a good movie, it really is. Exactly. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the other thing about the sound footage. You know, I I, it, I found it very very difficult to do, um, because of the restrictions. You couldn't think like a regular director, and right. it really boxed you in. It not only boxed you in visually, but it it boxed you in terms of just how you show the things in your movie. Uh, for example, there's a big bake sale in my film, uh, Stash. And uh, mm-hmm. the, no one's seen the footage yet except for me, the editor, the VP, and uh, the writer. And when the writer was looking at the footage, he said to me, "Did you? was that actually a bake sale? <laughs> he goes, I couldn't tell. And I'm thinking back to the footage, and I'm like, well, I can see why he says that, because we had this amazing gourmet bakery uh, Francisco's Bakery here on Long Island. Francisco Guerrero owns seven bakeries, and he donated all the all the food for that scene from his bakeries. And I'm talking go- gourmet cupcakes. And <sighs> uh, for example, imagine a big cupcake about double the size of a regular cupcake with nice. this cream that was like a frosting on the uh-huh. top, and then he had a Reese's peanut butter cup cut in half uh-huh. with a Kit Kat down the middle. Yeah! That was like one cupcake, and he had like brownies with M&M's. I mean, this is like super amazing baked goods. And when Tim watched the footage, he goes, was that actually a bakery? And I'm thinking about <laughs> what he might, what it meant. Or was it a baked scene? And I said, yeah, there was so there was cakes, cookies, Italian pastries, everything all over the place. But because it's on footage, it all gets we lost. Didn't have, <laughs> yeah, we didn't have inserts on the tables where all that food was. You see the character, I don't want to tell you too much, but the character walks in the cameras falling and all that. But we never show you these close-ups of the table. So I can see why I said it, but that stuff was all there completely. Believe me, you had people on the crew saying, that cupcake over there, I put my dibs on that one <laughs> with a butterfinger, <laughs> you know. And then you had someone else wanted the, the fresh wedding cake and someone else wanted the, the Italian cookies. I mean, I know the little kids that were in the scene, which one of them was my daughter. She was going crazy with all that stuff. Oh, man. So you had your daughter in this thing? That's awesome. Yeah, I couldn't believe it because I never in a million years would think that my wife, Paula, would put my daughter in the scene, because especially a movie about the devil. But yeah. what happened was... What happened Way to scar was, her for uh, life there, Terry. Good job. Exactly, exactly. But what happened was uh, when my wife found out where we were shooting, it was very close to where we live. And the other scenes were very far. I mean, we were in New Jersey the first weekend in Telephone, in the middle of uh, the woods in central Jersey. And then we were in Manhattan and uh, Inwood Hill Park the second weekend, which was uh, the biggest wooded park in old Manhattan. We basically needed an area that could match the woods of Jersey. We weren't showing Manhattan. We didn't want to show any of Manhattan. We were, but we needed woods. And I was trying to find somewhere close to where a lot of the actors and crew were, which were mostly from the city in New Jersey and you know Westchester and stuff. So we decided to shoot in uh, New York City, which is not easy, but uh, we did it. No and um, not, then the not last cheap weekend. Either. No, no, but I mean, I'll tell you what, we we really got lucky. I mean, we didn't have the right money for this movie. There's no doubt about right. it. $2,500 weight was not enough. But the the way we were able to pull off the film was a lot of people helped us. 
And not only was it places that gave us food for dinner for 15 to 30, 40 people a shoot, but we also had a director of photography friends lent us equipment for extremely low amount of money. I'm talking so cheap, it was insane. Uh, a friend of mine, Richard Kern, who was not only an actor in the movie, but he gave us quite a bit of money. And he also gave us his van to, sh to use the to carry the equipment the last two weekends. Because the first weekend, we actually spent about $500 on our U-Haul. If you're talking about $2,500 budget, you that's shoot three it, yeah. weekends, that's, that's $1,500. <laughs> we couldn't afford it. So yeah. I, I, I was talking to him, and I'm like, we got to get a van. I mean, we can't afford this. And he was like, well, what size? And I told him, and he goes, how about you use my van? I said, well, we also need a generator to power the lights. He goes, I got a generator too. So Rich... Rich, you know, Rick, Richard, whatever you want to call him, I know he goes by both. He was a lifesaver on the film, and he did so much for us. I mean, it was crazy. He even put, like, gas in his car while we drove there, filled it up when we needed it. I mean, it was just insane because we were really just getting barely by, and uh, we needed insurance at one point, or we couldn't have shot at any of the locations. And I went to Rick, and I said, Rick, you know, I know your boss wanted to come in on the investment when he missed the Indiegogo. And then Rick said, you know what, I think I want in, he'll do it. So Rick, Rick came in and gave us the money for insurance. So it was just really amazing that he did that. Um, and there were other things, too. You know, you had a makeup artist that drove from Pennsylvania, Sarah mm. Cruz. She came to every shoot from Pennsylvania and did a regular that's, makeup for all actors. Is that amazing? That's amazing. That, that's a labor of love. I mean, they're doing it for the love of the project, not even, you know, anything else. That's, that's exactly. awesome. Exactly. And, 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 you know, they, they all, they all are, have a, a piece of the pie, so to speak. Right. Uh, you know, when the movie does and, you know, if, it, if and when it makes money. But um, there's no guarantee what that will be. So, right, you know, they, exactly. everyone's, everyone's rolling the dice with me. And, you know, I got to love that because, you know, when, the one thing I was going to say is about making a movie is that, you know, when I, when I was doing it, you know, two months ago, it's really weird because a movie is not physical. It's, mm. You can't touch it. It's invisible. You can't right. grab your hands around it. So it's something that's like this, this force that you're, you think you have a control of it, but you honestly don't. I mean, you've got a vision, especially found footage. I mean, you're, that's even less control because, you know, right. you're talking in a regular movie, you've got these scenes that probably take shots between, you know, 20 seconds and a minute. Here we have these minute and a half to three and a half minute takes where the camera's following people and showing people go up things and do all this stuff. And you just, you're just waiting and the camera's not usually, you know, moving or if it is, it's on someone's iPhone or the video camera. Well, how many, well, just, how many smartphones did you guys use on this one, by the way? Uh, well, my particular episode, we, we didn't use, um, the only time we used smartphones were some of the congregation of the church who okay. were filming, you know, the, the stuff in the church. And then, right. Mostly, it was her own video camera, so she's carrying around a video camera. Okay. And yeah, you can make that look like it's a smartphone, kind of. Well, you, you know, you know, I, I, I wanted it to look amazing. I said, I don't, I don't give a crap. I don't give a <laughs> crap if it's not realistically looking like the camera we had, where you're seeing her use. I wanted it to look sensational, so we shot with a red camera. I mean, you're talking oh, 4K wow. resolution, almost oh, as good wow. as 35 millimeter film. <laughs> I, I said, you know what? I said, I said, screw that crappy, you know, junk. Let's make it look amazing. So, because, like I said, you asked me if people are tired of it. I think they already are. So yeah, instead no, of doing that, that you that know what? You know what's funny look, though. 
in about three years, smartphones are going to have red camera capabilities. I'm pretty sure the way technology is jumping forward so quick. Uh, so, oh, you, yeah. you know, when the movie's done in a few years, you're going to be right on schedule with what's going on in, the, in the modern technology on the phones. Exactly. And one, of, one of the <laughs> other things I did, too, uh, to kind of combat that shaky camera junk mm. is I said, I, you know, because I know the rules so well, I said, you know what? I want Steadicam in this movie. Not every shot, but I wanted some Steadicam especially when she goes out and starts looking for the stashes. And right. some people were said to me, like, well, that's not accurate. And I said, I don't give a crap. I want it to look good. So, you know, I, I had an end goal, a reason why I want it to be fluid. And it's truthfully not super fluid, like some Steadicam. It's a little bit rough at times. But yeah, it it's, it's, not like a cinematic, it's not like a cinematic shot. It's, you know, it's cinematic-esque, but it doesn't go all the way, like, they look like a cinematic exactly. movie. Yeah. Exactly, and it's not used the whole time. It was only we only used it one night out of. Okay. Uh, we we shot five days. This movie was shot in five days. Technically, I would call it more four and a quarter, because we lost three quarters of a night to a thunderstorm, where uh, we had to stop. But um, you know, one of the nights was steady cam. So um, I think it's still going to look really good, and 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 the rest of the stuff. You know, I, I was going for a great look instead of a crappy look. That was my goal. I hope you achieved it, man. I'm dying to see this thing. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing, I, was, I guess my point I was talking about with the invisible film, you can't touch it and all that, is the one thing I have to really say about this movie um, was that there's so many people that influence the end product, especially a found footage movie. And mm. because, you know, they obviously there's a script, and I'm following that script and trying to visualize the script. Right. But when you've got these long takes, some of it, so much of it is on what the actors are doing. And then you've got, you know, your, of course, your camera operator that's recording what they're doing. And obviously the production design from my production designer and, you know, costume designer and such. But um, I thought a lot of the stuff that the actors did were stuff that we didn't talk about. And I don't, I don't mean lines, but I mean just body movement, expressions. Right. Well, that's actually a question I have for you. I mean, how do you exactly direct an actor when it comes to, like, found footage? you just tell them, hey, just, you know, relax and be yourself? Is there a certain technique that you tell them, you know, you have to have, act a certain way? Because, you know, the, the way the actors act in found footage movies is very different from a regular movie, a cinematic, you know, movie. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess, obviously, we had a script, and we were trying to go closely to that in terms of dialogue and such. Um, so and no room for improvisation, we... no room for improving from the actors, then? I, I would say there's some, especially what they do with their bodies and stuff, because you can't okay. mark out every second of what an actor... They, you know, that, you right. can't give an actor that much to think about. You want to try to make it as real as possible for them and give right. them a little room for, for, you know, creating themselves. So I would say that we, we blocked the scene, we went through the scene, we talked about it. But some of the stuff, you know, happens live with what they're thinking and doing. And then you're also seeing things as you go. And based on what you see, you may may make a changes based on that, or they may make changes. So it's kind of like a evolving, progressive thing. It's kind of a live thing. Um, and, uh, you know, then you also have your director of photography that's seeing stuff, and he's adding stuff. He sees the actor struggling, or maybe she doesn't hit her mark. Or maybe it's not that she's missing her mark. Maybe he sees something different in the camera that needs to change. So what's really great for me was I had all these people that were really great thinkers and they really came with this stuff to the table, even if it was just on that day. And, um, 
you know, you got to love that because it adds so much to the film. And you can't take all the credit. I mean, there's just too many people. And um, I guess I guess the bottom line is if you get the right people and they think along those same lines, then the movie will turn out good, especially if I'm for his movie. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I'm dying to see this thing. Uh, so when do we? When is the next f- uh, phase of filming beginning? Well, for me, I'm edi- I'm in the editing phase now, and I'm way okay. ahead of everybody else. You know, so what I'm what I'm actually doing right now was I gave everyone about I, well, not everyone, but I gave my editor like three or four weeks where I didn't contact him because on my shoot, believe it or not, my ed- editor um, Robert came to every one of our shoots, which is very rare, and that was right. really great because. Not only did you see what we're shooting, but we were able to talk technically in terms of the later on the color correction, maybe what he needed to do with the picture to change it, to match it. Because there is a couple of visual effects that we have to add. And he's also a visual effects guy and he's going to color correct himself. So, um, so the phase that we're at right now, so I didn't want to, I wanted to give him a break because we thought shot three consecutive weekends. I thought, you know, I took these people summer, like three weeks, three weeks out of their summer. So, I waited for about a month before I contacted him to get the footage. And I just saw it at first about 14 days ago. And I watched all of the footage. And it was weird because, you know, when you shoot with a red camera, the sound is not recording on the same device. Right. So we had a separate sound mixer there. Um, and uh, and actually on, a day or t- on one day, our sound guy was actually not there because he thought his wife went into labor. It ended up being false contractions, but he was not there. So we actually have no sound for a whole day, so we have to go do that uh, in the studio. Um, but anyway, so when I was watching all this footage, I was watching it silent. It was really wow. cool. But I know all the words. I know I was there. I, I know the script in and set out. But uh, it was pretty cool. So to give you to answer your question, um, I'm in the logging phase, so I'm actually logging every shot, gotcha. every take, every shot. What's good? What's bad? Then I'll come with a plan to Robert, and me and Robert will put the film together. I was originally just going to have him do like a rough edit, but he's so busy with other work and stuff. I guess I shouldn't have expected that. So, uh, and I'm kind of a hands-on director. So um, I guess together we'll go in and I'll come up with a plan and it'll be based on Tim's script. I mean, we're doing the same thing. It's just the shots and what takes we'll right. use and we'll go in there. But I will say that uh, after watching all the footage, I felt that there was two things we needed to pick up and we haven't shot that yet, but we're going to, we're going to do something for the end that I felt we needed um, it's a continuation of what we already have. And I felt that when we were out in the woods for the night scenes, I felt that we needed some more transitional shots. No actors are needed for that. So me and the DP will just go out and we'll shoot some shots as if it was her video camera recording. Oh, that's cool. So, and that, yeah, you could do that pretty quickly. You don't need most of the cast there also, right? Just, uh, no, I, I'd say, I'd, I'd say for transitional shots of just being the DP. And then yeah. I'd say for the ending that we'll have, uh, We'll just need our actor, actress in the scene, which our main actress, uh, Moog, Tail, um, our special makeup effects artist. Our reg- I don't know if we need a regular makeup artist. I guess if she wants to come, or I think our special makeup effects could do a DP, probably my AD, because he's really great with the equipment with Edwin. And, you know, we had, we had a lot of equipment, uh, and, um, you know, and then um, the production designer should be there to, to make the props in the scene and stuff. And then I think Rick is actually going to set it up. We're going to shoot it. Um, probably in the next two or three weeks, and then after that we'll have all the footage. But, you know, that's not un- unusual that you pick up scenes on any movie. You know, you figure out oh, what yeah. you need, but mm-hmm. something's missing. And you figure four and a quarter days shooting, that's not much time. So right. I originally thought I originally thought we were going to shoot seven days, and we actually finished two days early. But I think if we had the seven, I think we would have got everything. 
but there were factors that made me have to kind of finish when I did. Because, you know, everybody starts booking other gigs. Right. The actress was going out of the country for a while, so we just did the best we could, you know. And that also made it very intense and pretty pressurized during the shoot. <laughs> I, I should tell you stories about the shoot, like itself, how crazy that was, but I don't, I don't know if you want to hear I, that. I'm surprised, I'm surprised you guys uh, shut down when it was a thunderstorm. I, I would have put that in the script somewhere and shot with a thunderstorm. That, that could be pretty scary in one of these films. You, you know, think like the storm going on in the background. Well, I, I, dev, I definitely could see that, but then the only problem would be to try to match it continuity-wise, where you're shooting the next night or next day or next That's weekend. True. You know, because we were shooting weekends, so, you know, we shot the 12th and 13th of July in New Jersey, then Manhattan on the 19th and the 26th and 27th in Melville, Long Island. But um, the thing I was going to say about the thunderstorm was that was our second night. So you're talking July 13th. We had shot the night before um, till about 4 o'clock in the morning. And we were out in the woods with, you know, ticks and spiders and mosquitoes. It was in the middle of July, so it was very hot and sweaty. And, you know, when you shoot all night in those conditions, it wears you down. And mm -hmm. most people, we didn't have the money to put people in a hotel. So people either had to have somewhere in New Jersey to stay or they had to oh, go wow. all the way back home. So you're talking about a lot of the people had to go back to Manhattan, which is about two hours away. Some people were farther than that. Um, so um, I actually stayed with my my um, my wife's uncle, and the production designer came with me as well. So we, but that was still like a two hour drive south. So, so you're talking four o'clock in the morning. We're going to bed at six <laughs> o'clock in the morning, and yeah, then we had lucky. to turn around and come back the next night. And you know that was a Sunday night, and people had to go to work the next morning. Some of them, but like four o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. Here we are shooting. So I knew that the shoot had to be shorter. But what happened was it was, um, we started shooting on uh, that night about, I guess we started uh, shooting. We started shooting when it was still daylight. We did some pickup shots, the transitional shots during the day. Then we started going some of our night transitional shots. And then we had this one kind of creepy shot, which I don't want to tell you too much about. And as we we're doing that, my editor, Robert came over and he showed me a smartphone. He goes, take a look at this. And he showed me his phone. It was a map of the East Coast. And it was a Doppler radar. And you saw this massive red storm coming from Pennsylvania. Here we are in central Jersey. And I said, when is that supposed to get here? And he said, about 11 o'clock. So at that point, it was about 9 o'clock. So it was like two hours. And we definitely had way more to do than that than two hours. So I said, all right, keep me posted on that. So we start shooting. And I remember Edwin, my DP, before we'd even started, when it stayed daylight, the guy, the guy was really on his feet. I give Edwin a lot of credit. The guy, thank God he was my DP on this film because he was really a godsend. The guy knows equipment. He's really knows how to run a crew. Uh, when we were first setting up on Sunday night, he made this like makeshift tent out of uh, bungee cords and um, tarps. Oh wow! And he said to me, what, "He goes, what are we going? What are you going to do if it rains? Because it's supposed to rain tonight." And I said, I don't know what we'll, we'll to call it as, it as it happens. So he made this thing, thank God, thinking ahead. So here we are going down the woods. Now, by the way, where we're at, where I'm talking about, you had, this was uh, 17 acres of wooded land. We had to go through like this grassy field, through a, ho a gated horse paddock, huh. through another gate that led to another horse paddock. And then I think there was actually a third paddock. So we're basically like, through a bunch of gated fences, and then you right. go out into the woods. So here we are 
I'd call it the southern part of the property that we're shooting on, or maybe actually the western part. And he shows me this thing. About an hour goes by, we're shooting. And we have generators out there, all this equipment, probably about two or $300,000 worth of equipment. All kinds wow. of big lights, a whole bunch of generators, all this equipment, right? So, which doesn't move itself very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. we had a crew of about, I guess there was about 15 or 20 of us there. And um, what happened was an hour passes and then the editor comes over and he goes, the makeup artist, Sarah, her boyfriend called and told her that this storm was knocking trees down in Pennsylvania. Wow. So he said, that's what's coming. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so I'm getting you know, nervous. You almost, you, know, saw the, you almost saw the devil for real. <laughs> exactly. And not to go on and on, not to be too too detailed out here, but about an hour after that, I, I knew that if I watched the sky a little bit, I wasn't trying to be over really paranoid, but if I saw something that really bothered me, then I would make a decision. So I would say it was about maybe 1030. And I saw the sky in the distance light up. It wasn't lightning. It was too far away. But I noticed the sky light up. And I looked at Robert and I said, how much is that camera we're shooting with? That red camera. He goes, that's worth about 60000 I said, okay, guys, that's it. We're going to stop. And at that point, that we haven't had dinner yeah. anyway. And yeah, I said, I said we haven't had dinner anyway. And they're like, are you sure? We've got the scene set up for after this, which is the scene with the scarecrow. They go, we got the next scene set up. I said, no, I want. Now, remember, you're in the woods, so there's no street lights out there. It's pitch black. Everybody's mm-hmm. got their iPhone uh, flashlight apps on, and we have you know, flashlights and stuff. So I said, listen, I want everybody to calmly grab the equipment, and I want to take it back up to the house, which took about 10, 15 minutes to walk it through all the gates and not let the horses out and all that stuff. So um, it took about 20, 25 minutes to get all the crew up. And we had one truck that the uh, family letting us use the place would drive their truck down and we put our heavy stuff on there and all the big lighting equipment and stuff and we bring it up. I'd say after the second trip of all the equipment, I, t- I said, by the way, I said, here, give me the camera. I will take that camera up because I didn't want to be responsible for that. So, you know, I took <laughs> it up and put it in the house. But it took us about 25 minutes and when, I'd say we were about 15 steps from the house on our second trip, it started pouring. And we got in the house, and it was about 10.45, 10.50 p.m. I said, you know what, let's eat dinner. We ate dinner at that point. And then maybe after about a half hour eating dinner, um, I looked at the editor and said, how long is the storm supposed to last? He said, 11 o'clock. I said, okay, that's it. Because I knew everybody had to go to work. Right. I said, it doesn't make sense to wait two hours for the storm to pass. So we lost most of that night to a storm. And oh, I, I look at it yeah. as, you know, think about it. Would you want to pay for $200,000 worth of equipment or 300000 No, heck no. <laughs> no way, man. No, I had, to, I had to call that. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, it would have been a great shot if you could actually shoot something like that. But no, yeah, I completely understand. makes perfect sense. Uh, that sucks, though, on the very second day of shooting for that to happen to you guys. Yeah, I, I tell you, you know, I didn't want to do it. I mean, at, at some point, you, you're probably like, man, is this an omen? Is this supposed to, you know, like, tell me something? Because this is just terrible. Well, see, see that, and that's the thing I was talking about with the movie, too. You've got to be, you've got to be, um, you've got to be able to adapt and to change with the situations that come up because you honestly can't control everything. It's impossible. So you've got to see things, and, and that could be shots. It could be the way mm-hmm. you planned it. You've got to change yep. it. Um, the, the last night we actually had another sun thunderstorm when we were shooting in a church and, um, we had all these generators with lights outside shooting through the windows. And at one point the thunder just started lightning and everything. And, you know, you, are you going to blow out those, 
lights. You're going to burn those generators out. You're going to pay for that stuff. You're going to be responsible for that. So, you know, we had to shut it off and then we had to shoot without them. We had to shoot with a different situation. So to me, you know, a movie, it's so important that you have a vision, you have a script, all that, but you kind of kind of have to roll with the punches and Lord knows we got some ones on this film. So <laughs> I just, I just did the best we could. And, you know, and, and in the end you had to make your day. I mean, that last shooting yeah. day, we shot 18 hours straight. I mean, I'm talking about that's rough. That's very tough. And and the truth of it is, whenever you have a long shoot like that, at some point it gets kind of hard to be as productive as when you're really fresh. Right. You know, everyone starts to get a little tired. Everyody yeah. starts to move a little slower. You know, you're talking about you're starting at you're starting at like you know in the afternoon, and now it's four or five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, everybody's ready people, to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, and some people had to go to work two hours later. They were oh, actually man. not going to go to bed. Is that crazy? Oh, yeah, that's ter- that is terrible. Well, it's, it, again, it's all you know, a labor of love, really. But yeah, that is that is crazy. I've done it before, but it's been because I've been partying till four in the morning. But it never, it is never fun going to work without sleeping all night. That's hell. Yeah, and, 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 you know, really and, and you know, the other thing I wanted to say, um, and this is to whoever might be listening out there, or listens to this later on podcast, or whatever. Uh, last night, me and my wife went and saw uh, a really cool band. Probably the my favorite band ever come out of New, uh, Long Island, um, besides Dream Theater. Um, they're called Voodoo Storm, and they hadn't played Good together point. for 17 years. Yeah, I hadn't played in 17 years, and I had directed a music video for them actually about 20 years ago, back in 95, and mm. my favorite music video I ever directed out of all the ones I ever did. And these guys hadn't played together or been together for 17 years. And what it made me think about in terms of my own movie, and maybe all the people out there who are creative, whether you're an artist, a filmmaker, a musician, whatever it may be that you do, writer. What I think is so important about these projects is it's so they're so hard to get made. I, movies might be harder than any other art form. Yep, and I, I, I remember back, I, I honestly can remember Angel or Jackal. I remember back in um, <laughs> 08. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back in 08, I come off this movie where I'd worked a year and a half. It was going to change my life. They're going to pay me this amazing amount of money, way more than I make at my regular job, and it never gets made. Then I start trying to get financing for my movie Anomaly. And it, I try everything. I go to banks, investors, Wall Street people, everything. Can't find anybody to finance it. Change the script. Someone reads it. They say, try this. I change the script to that. After a while, I said to myself, you know what? What am I going to do? I mean, it mm. seemed like nothing was working. And I remember saying to myself at one point in 08, I remember this, I remember saying, maybe I should stop doing this. Maybe I shouldn't make films. It's so, it's like you give so much and you never get anything back. And it's so tough. I mean, I won an international film contest back in 03, which is great. And I got a movie to direct from that movie, which was Tim Clark had written and produced called Hair of the Dog. And that turned out great. Got distributed by IndieRoad.net. Got distributed a whole bit. I ended up getting waterfalls because of Indy, because of uh, Washington Road and also which that was the award-winning film. But when I was trying to go, after I didn't get a waterfalls made and it was going to change my life, after I couldn't get an anomaly made, I just said to myself, maybe I shouldn't do this. This is such a hard thing. It's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. So when I saw Voodoo Storm last night, it really hit me and I made this movie two months ago and I'm going to be making another movie in about, what, four months from now. I, I thought maybe it's not the every not everybody could be Steven Spielberg or Jim Cameron. Not everybody <laughs> well, yeah. could be 
There's right, only one Steven Spielberg can... and James Cameron for that reason, Terry. I mean, you know, right, right, right. Yeah. And, and if you're a band, not everybody's going to be Metallica or Madonna right. or, you know, uh, Maroon 5 or, you know. So maybe maybe it's not that we're all going to be these big shots. Maybe the goal is that we're all just doing what we love, making films, writing scripts, making books, you know, writing comic books, whatever it is. I, so I thought that was so great with the band last night. It was the original members. They came back. They, they all said they wouldn't have done the music without each other. And I thought that was so awesome because it was so pure and true. I think that like that, in terms of my like my getting the chance to finally make a movie, because honestly, this movie, Stash, it's the first thing I've directed since I've made the trailer for Anomaly, which mm-hmm. is five years ago, actually six, because my daughter was born. I didn't do anything since she was born. And then the movie I made before that was Hair of the Dog, and that's 83, uh, excuse me, 03. So I technically had not made a movie in 10 years. Wow. That's Think tough. about that. That's a long stretch. Yeah, that's tough. That's very similar to the band. The band mm-hmm. hadn't played in 17 years. So I just think that if you really love something and you can somehow do it, do it. Don't let anything stop you. Like, you know, when I was giving my advice to George, who's going to direct his Devil's Five segment, the, the best, best advice I gave him, I said, George, don't let anything stop you because everything's going to try. Time, money, actors, mm-hmm. crew, Everything's going to try to stop you, but you've got to be like the Terminator. Just keep making it. Yep. You know, yep. That, I just think that if anyone out there is listening, if you've got anything you like to do, try to do it somehow because that's what, you know, making movies makes me happy. I think the band last night, they were happy to play together again. They were happy to make music for people. You know, it made me happy to listen to it. You know, so I just think that that's probably the key to all this is that you somehow can do what you like, even if you're not a big shot. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what, and I, I enjoy actually when directors make more, uh, you know, close to home projects when their, their movies are something that they develop, a script that they put together. Uh, you know, it, it feels more personal. You know, especially like directors like Kevin Smith is a good example because almost every movie he's ever done has been something that he created. It's his own universe. You know, it's his own ideas and stuff like that. I think that that's really what you need to you know be successful in in uh, filmmaking these days is to have your own vision and just you know, like you said, don't give up. That's the worst thing filmmakers do is when they give up on their dream and and just uh, go get a regular job and they stop you know making movies because you never know when your you know your hit could be you know when that script that you write uh, could be the big one that, that you know launches your career or that movie you direct to launch your career you really don't know but ten year gap is a long time to go between making movies though I mean how odd was it getting back on you know to the swing of things after ten a ten year gap like that. Well, 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 the first thing I would say is that the the, the ten years between film films, not, maybe not when I was working on a film like Waterfalls, but when I wasn't working on a film, in a lot of ways inside, it made me miserable. I mean, I don't mean all the time. I can Obviously, imagine my that's, family. This is, yeah, this is your passion, but, you know. Oh, it, it burns yeah. me so deep, and it, it's so it's such a big part of my my who I am. Mm-hmm. So for me, it made me very unhappy. I mean. You could be making all the money in the world, which I don't, obviously, but you could be doing a regular job, you could have a family, and you could still be miserable. If you're a creative person and you want to do something, it bothers you. And I know it bothered me a lot. I was very frustrated. I was very unhappy in in many ways. I mean, you could still have moments where you're happy, but the truth is, I was killing me. And, you know, the fact that I could go out and do it again, 
was great. Was it easy? No. It was. It's always hard. It's really hard. Harder yeah. than any job you could. Because, like I said, it doesn't exist. Right. There's no. You know, when you say Faith Daniels and Minister Malcolm, these characters that are in my movie, those aren't real people. Right. You know, those places you see in my movies, they don't exist. So, you know, you're creating worlds. In some ways, the writer and the director are kind of like gods. I don't mean that in an egotistical way, but we're creating like these yeah, lives. Yeah, creating, yeah, and, universe. No, and, and look, and not only that, you say it's a non-physical thing, and it's getting worse now with the whole digital revolution when it comes to filmmaking. You know, at least back in the in the day, you had film stock that you could actually hold on to, and it's a physical thing. Now it's, you don't even have that. But, no, you're absolutely right. You know, directors, you know, writers, filmmakers in general do plays, you know, semi-god you know, because of the fact you are creating your own universe, uh, which is funny. There's a lot of, uh, you know, memes out there with George Lucas that says George Lucas is God because he created Star Wars, you know. But in a sense, he created his own universe, and it's all, you know, it's all there for people to enjoy and have fun for the rest of their lives and their kids' lives and stuff. And that's what you're doing as well. So in, in a sense, you're absolutely right. And there, there's no ego involved. I completely get where you're coming from with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to answer the rest of your question, like, how did I do it after being so long away? Mm-hmm. You know, it's really weird. When, when I put the credits on the Internet Movie Database, IMDb on the Internet, it actually at first when I put my name as the director... And of course, it, it connects to any other films you might have made. Right. It said, "Are you sure this is the right person? Because this guy hasn't made a movie in ten years." <laughs> and so it actually, it actually was going to reject it at first, but I eventually oh, wow. took it. You know, when you could prove that it, you know you were part of it. But yeah, you know, for me, of course, I I thought a lot about films. I I, I had so much time to prepare for this movie because Stash had been written. It took a while for Tim to write Stash because he's busy doing other things and such. But when he finally finished the first draft, it was actually last December. I think it was like the 10th of December. Yep. So and we shot July. So we had like six months with the script. And, you know, there were some changes to the script. We changed the ending. We had this thing that I think is very pivotal. And it's a moment in the film. I don't want to say anything about it because I don't want to give it away. But, um, you know, so I just, I did, I did things in my head to prepare to, to do the film. And of course I, 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 you know, I have so many years that I've been directing that I could draw off of and I knew it inside out and I had good people I was working with. So it, that made it easier, but it changed and, you know, we made modifications as we went, but, um, it was, it was not easy, but I, I was pretty much ready for it. And I'm, I think I'm very adaptable and I, I try to just, you know, get the work done, et cetera. So, and I treat people with respect. So, but, but by the way, going to that scene, um, it could be my favorite moment that I've ever had as a director on any film oh, in wow. my almost 30 years of making films. I mean, it really, it's this moment that's unlike any other in the whole film. Um, it's actually a funny thing. And I was, I was laughing so hard when we did it. And my DP, everyone is very business. I'm talking about my DP was so businesslike. And I looked over at him and he was on the floor laughing. And uh, I'll tell you, when I went to work, like the day or two after, I was in my car driving, and I was still laughing. I had like tears in my eyes. I was laughing like, because I, I know it worked. And it's so going to be so unexpected when you see it in the film. So I think it's probably going to be the moment that singled out the most out of the whole film. And it's it's not what it's about. The movie's pretty tense and scary. So <laughs> <laughs> Don't give too much away. I want the audience to see this and be surprised. So let's not get too exactly. deep into the spoilers. But I'm dying to see this uh, finished and put together. It's going to be a while, though, before we get the uh, final movie, though, people. So you got to wait a little longer. 
for this thing to come out. When you when you have it ready, though, you have to, I'm sure, um, go crazy with the social media and all the kind of stuff. But uh, how are you guys going to handle that? The post, you know, finishing the film and um, and selling all that stuff. Who's you know? Do you have a department working on that now, or is this already uh, there? The contracts on the table for you guys. How's that working out? Well, I would say that we don't have anything on the table as of yet, but I do think we're going to try to reach out distributors to see if we can get interest. Mm-hmm. I think we might do that when we have a few more of the films shot, actually, because right. I think then it, it'll be more of a you know real any, thing. It's not not that not any, that it's unreal, but you've only got one movie so far. So right. I, I think that um, you know there's no one that's uh, we don't have an agent or someone representing us yet, but I think that you know you got five main people behind the film: Tim Clark, the writer for Stash. You know, you got Thad Bird, the executive producer and mm-hmm. director, star of uh, his episode, Devil You Know. Uh, George Bianca is doing Don't Say These Words, and uh, Edwin Ferrer is doing Choke. So I think between the five of us, we're going to use all our contacts imaginable. We're going to go to everyone we can. We'll hopefully find someone that will represent us. If they don't, then we'll represent the movie ourselves. But we're going to, you know, spread out, and we're going to try to get everything we can. I mean, we're going to try to do the... The same story that everyone else does, and hopefully we can be successful at it. But I do, yeah, I do man. think we've got a, I do think we're gonna have a movie that's gonna speak to people and uh, give them more than they usually get for the found footage stuff, especially, and um, hopefully they'll laugh and they'll be scared and a little grossed out as well. Yeah, no, Devil's Five has sounded really cool since I first heard of it. You know, a while back with uh, Thad and you and. Uh, you know, reading the script was just, uh, you know, really, really enlightening because now I, I kind of know where you guys are going with this, and it really sounds uh, phenomenally well put together. Uh, you know, are you guys thinking about, uh, you know, maybe throwing this in, uh, let's say, uh, some film festivals or anything like that? Because, I mean, th- this kind of movie, I think, would clean up at a, at a film festival. Or oh, definitely. Very def- well. Yeah, definitely, especially since there's so many films that get a, yep. like a, a, they get a platform to dive off, so to speak, whether right. it be Sundance with Blair Witch or... You know, any mm-hmm. one of those. So I, I would say without question, we want to hit as many as we can. You know, the only problem will be is that, you know, our film is, uh, you know, self-financed or financed right. through campaigns. So it, it'll probably come down to how much money do we have because a lot of them you have mm. to pay to get in. So, yeah. you know, a lot yeah. of them we'll try to get in. The bigger ones it might be tougher, but we'll try our best to get to everyone possible. And if we can develop a word of mouth and start to get, like, a little bit of a following, uh, that will also help in our quest for that. So, um yeah, definitely. We're not we're not leaving anything on the table. We don't want this to sit around anywhere. We want to go out and be in the entire world, you know. Yeah, please don't let this uh, set in development hell after you shot the first one already. Yeah, this is uh, too good to uh, to leave on the table like that. Uh, are you guys going to put together any more Kickstarter accounts for any of the other uh, pieces that you're, that you're going to film? Well, I know that George right now has his going on Indiegogo. So if any of you guys okay. want to go check out his campaign, which I would highly encourage, you can put a put together a really cool video where he talks about what he's trying to do and about his project. If you go to uh, Indiegogo.com, it's uh, Don't Say These Words. Just look up in the uh, search button in the top right corner. You can go down there and donate, get part of, become part of the film, so to speak. He has different perks, different things you can get back based on your involvement, similar to what I did. Um, and he got a really good start. I mean, he had like he was like five hundred dollars in the second day. I was like, "Geez, how'd you get so quick ahead of me?" You know. So, uh, <laughs> but but you know what? I love that because it just means our film our film as a whole will be better. So I'm not. Yeah. I don't look at that in a jealous way or anything like that. I I hope he gets a hundred thousand dollars to just make our movie better. And so of I'm all about not. helping my my film brothers, so to speak, on this movie. So and I know they've helped me. So I mean, I I think that's also something in filmmaking in general. You know, why should anyone might be competitive with each other? Mm. I mean, the fact is it's so hard to do it 
why not try to help each other? I mean, I recently struck up a, a little bit of a friendship with a director named Dante Tomaselli, who made about five films that went out in the market, like Desecration and Torture Chamber and Satan's Playground, a bunch of other movies. And we've been talking a little bit, and he's he's making music CDs besides making his own films. I mean, he scores and writes and directs his own movies, but now he's got these like Halloween-themed CDs with music and sound effects and ghosts and goblins and stuff. So I've been reviewing his CDs. He ended up seeing the trailer for my movie Anomaly, and I was actually trying to see it, tell him to look at Stash, like the picture from Stash. And he goes, I like this movie Anomaly. Well, how much money do you need? And I told him, and he said, you know what, maybe I can help you get that made. Maybe I can help mm. you get an investor for that. So I love that. I love when other filmmakers will help each other. You know, that's, I think yep. there's no reason why they yep. shouldn't. You know what I mean? Oh, I completely agree. I was part of a project back in 2005, a little movie they shot here called Motel, which was shot for like, I think it was like 180000 or 200000 you know, relatively low budget, but, you know, big budget compared to some other independent movies. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, most of that money went to the, the sets, you know, building the props, everything that they needed to do for the film. And everybody else was, you know, there because they just want to be a part of it and they all, you know, believed in the project and they all came together. The worst thing that happened, though, the movie fell apart after it was already finished and shot and edited and everything. And it was a squabbling issue between the producers and the director and they ended up just shelving the movie. And it's a really good little movie. Uh, so, it, you know, that's one thing that I hate when that happens uh, to films like this. Uh, like I said, I, I hope this does not happen in your movie because uh, to come together like that and have everybody, uh, you know, pitch in the way they have, it's really special it really is yeah and, and you know I'm, I'm really enjoying it and uh you know the, the the situation you just spoke of actually is one of the movies in devil's five uh uh oh, no edwin's kidding. episode yeah edwin's episode choke involves a producer and director that are having a problem mm. uh amongst each other and it causes one of them to do something that to hurt the other one to get back the other one and you know you have something comes along that involves of course the devil <laughs> and uh, I don't want to give it too much away from his story because that's not my place to say. But but uh, his gets a little bit nasty and crazy too. So yeah, that's very real. And, and obviously, we know about that kind of stuff, and we've involved it in one of our stories with this movie. Yeah, the producer involved in the uh, motel story uh, with what happened there was the devil, I think, man, because that dude was just flipping nuts. I mean, what he did was uh, bananas. Not going to get into it, but it was just it was really messed up stuff. You know, I'm actually working on a documentary myself that I'm putting together for next year, and I'm using a website because Indiegogo is great. I, I've you know been on their website and and uh, you know navigated it. And it's a really cool website. But have you heard of GoFundMe. dot com? GoFundMe. I think I might have saw that when I was looking at all the uh, you know all the uh, campaign type places to use, and I think I might have saw that. Um, I went with Indiegogo, so I just felt comfortable with that. My AD, Michael Fells, was comfortable with it. We were kind of working together on the campaign slightly. So uh, that's why I chose mine. But how do you like it? Is it working for you? Well, I've been uh, researching all the different uh, platforms like this or Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And if, uh, to be honest, I mean, this one looks like it's probably the best one out of all of them. I know the one you know, main perk that Indiegogo has is if, even if you don't meet your threshold of what you're asking for, you still get to keep the money that you do raise. Uh, which Kickstarter doesn't do that, you know. If you don't make it, they don't give you a penny. Uh, so yeah, that, I mean, that, that was that, that was my reason why I chose Indiegogo because we needed the money no matter what. Yeah, no, I hear you. That. That's that's one of the main advantages of Indiegogo, and I think uh, Go uh, GoFundMe has the same kind of rule that if you make, you know, X amount of money, but you don't hit your goal, you still get to keep the money. And they've raised over four hundred and fifty million dollars in the last few years alone uh, for independent wow. projects and movies and stuff. Yeah, wow. it's, it's an amazing. 
um, thing. And they're actually considered the number one personal fundraising website of uh, independent films, uh, which is funny because I've, you know, I've asked a couple of friends in the industry who are making films also like yourself, and not many people that I've asked know about it. And uh, when you look on their website, you see all kinds of big projects that are being put on there. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to give away anything of what I'm working on yet because it's still very, very secretive. Uh, but there's a documentary I'm putting together, that, which I'm going to start it in January, and uh, we're going to start the funding through here. So. Oh, I hope you. Uh, I hope it does well. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not easy. Believe me, I know <laughs> yeah, it's tell not me about easy. it. Well, I'm not going to direct the thing. I'm going to edit it, and I'm going to co-direct it, but I'm going to have some help and in, in, in stuff with this thing. And it, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to give away too much information yet because it's not ready. But pretty soon people are going to start seeing uh, stuff on here uh, for that. Uh, you guys should look into it. I mean, uh, like I said, GoFundMe is a really cool-looking website. I, I highly recommend you check it out. It's, uh, Forbes um, has written about it. CNN has you know talked about it. It's been on Time Magazine, New York Daily Times, you know, all of them. I'll check it out for sure. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, Terry, you know, the time flies by when you're on the show, man. Every time Thank you're you. on Thank here, you. you know, it's just awesome having you on. We definitely have to have you back on really soon because I want to have you on as this thing is getting shot and put together and, you know, so we could give updates to the audience and have a podcast for the listeners uh, who, are, you know, check out the podcast later on. Um, so, you know, we will have you on, you know, really, really soon again and, uh, you know, tell us everything that's happening when you come back on. Uh, but, you know, anybody who wants to follow along, uh, is there a particular website right now that people can go and kind of follow what's going on with the process of the film? Uh, if they want to contribute, is there an email address you want to give them? Because, you know, listeners might want to say, they might say, hey, you know, I want to chip in and, and help this project along. You know, is there something that you can give out right now that people could, you know, get a hold of to get a hold I of guess, you guys? I guess, sure, there's, there's multiple ways they can do that. Uh, my website which has an email contact you can click on it, come to me, is mantaraypictures.com. That's M-A-N-T-A-R-A-Y-P-I-C-T-U-R-E-S.com. Mm -hmm. From my site, you can connect to our Facebook page, which is Devils 5 Movie. So that's just, you know, facebook.com slash D-E-V-I-L-S, no apostrophe, and the number five movie. That's where we are on Facebook. You can also go on Twitter. You can either go to Terry Wickham, I believe it's just Terry Wickham, or the better one probably for this movie actually would be Stash the Movie at Twitter. So that's just, you know, Stash the Movie, all one word. Um, so any one of those you can reach us at. Um, and I know probably George will create his own and probably right. Bad will create his own. But we're all together on the Facebook page, but we'll probably all have our own Twitters. Um, but yeah, anybody want to shout out something, if they want to get involved, We'd love that kind of stuff. It'd be great. We we appreciate any help like that. Now, if you guys are, are going to you know all have your own separate social media campaigns, are you going to do one global website that's going to unify all the movies? Or have you guys talked about that yet? I would say that that would be a, probably be our Facebook page, and um, okay. in terms of the Twitters and stuff like that, that would just be outside that. But I think our main one is considered the fa the Devil's Five on Facebook, and that's been up uh, honestly since uh, July of summer before like in the thirteen. So, and we've been updating it periodically as we're doing things. I think Thad and George are about to start really getting involved, putting their information since they're getting ready to do their movie soon. Uh, mostly it was me at first, but now uh, we've got them about to go. So, yeah, we're all involved on that, and we can all post there. And um, it's kind of a good way to just keep track of the film as we go. Yeah, that's true. Social media has really uh, changed the spectrum of 
of a lot of things. Uh, it, you know, it's funny because a lot more movies and directors are going directly to social media like Twitter and and Facebook and stuff like to promote their movies instead of having full blown websites nowadays. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's pre- it's like pretty it, it, it saves them money, right? Yeah, no, that that too. <laughs> it really does. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and it's easy. You just go on there, you create an account, and you just start posting stuff, and, uh, you know, people find it easily on Facebook uh, and, and Twitter and stuff. Uh, and it's instant connection with the audience, too, which that's very important. I always think that uh, it makes it a little bit more personal when the audience can connect directly to the filmmakers or to the actors or to the project itself and leave messages and comments back and forth. That's always a lot more exciting for the audience who's following the project like this. So, uh, you know, that's awesome, man. I hope you guys uh, really do well. And, again, come back very soon. I want to have more updates on this project on, on the show. I, I definitely want to follow along on what's going on uh, periodically. So we'll, we, we'll see you back very soon. Okay, Promise. great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Jack. I really appreciate it. No, Terry, always a lot of fun. You're, you're a great guest, a great friend also, by the way. I love having uh, this man on the show. And uh, we're going to continue the ongoing saga that is Terry Wickham's filmmaking career because it is going to get better. You're going to have bigger and bigger projects. I, I feel it in my heart, Terry. You're going to have more bigger opportunities after this movie comes out. This is going to open a lot of doors for you, my friend. Thank you. I hope so. That'd be That'd be wonderful. That would be. Uh, we're almost all out of time here. We have another show coming right up, right after this one, The Outer Edge with Tim Schwartz and Michael Mott right here on PSN Radio. Uh, I'm going to play uh, this track again uh, before we leave. And uh, before I play it, though, this is part of the movie. Tell us a little bit about uh, the, the song itself uh, real quick and the artist who created this piece of music for you. Yeah, this this uh, piece of music was created for our Indiegogo campaign we had back in uh, May, June. Mm-hmm. It was created by Michael Romeo, who if if you guys don't recognize the name, he's actually world-class guitar player for the band Symphony X. None of the music reflects his guitar playing because Mike's uh, interest outside of playing guitar is actually film composing. So uh, Mike had worked with me on my film Hair of the Dog back in 03, me and Tim's film, mm-hmm. and he created original music for that as well as uh, licensing one of the uh, songs from Symphony X, King of Terrors. So anyway, this is uh, something he created for Indiegogo. It's brand new. It's original. It's not used anywhere else. Um, I had given him some uh, music to uh, kind of go by that I was looking for, and he didn't copy that music, but it was just kind of a similar theme or right. not theme, a tone. And um, it's it's not actually music that's going to be technically in the movie, per se, this cut, because it's for the Indiegogo, but it's going to have very similar thematic Feel. material, I'd say. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a different feel. And uh, so Mike... Uh, I think Mike did a really great job. He did it really yep. fast. And uh, this is uh, Stash's Indiegogo music. And shout-outs to Mike. We have to give him a double plug there. We mentioned him earlier, but I wanted to mention him one more time because it is a nice piece of music. So shout-outs to him. As a musician myself, uh, amateur musician, I always like to uh, you know, give props where props are due. And good piece of music, man. Loved it. Oh, of Guys, course, of course. And he, and he made it, so he should get that credit, you know? Definitely. Uh, guys, we're all out of time. Unfortunately, uh, we're, we're running down the clock here, and uh, we're, we have uh, Mike Mott and Tim Schwartz breathing down my neck. They want to get on the air. So we're going to go and say goodnight. We're going to be back next week on Inside the Jackal's Head. Also, tomorrow night, Future Theater, 8 p.m., right here on PSN Radio with uh, Bill and Nancy Burns. Great couple, those two. You, you like Bill and Nancy Burns, Terry? Are you familiar with them? I'll be honest, I'm not, but uh, I'd like have to you check seen, it out. If- have you seen UFO Hunters on TV? Oh, yeah, yeah, the TV show. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay, remember the the guy with the, the hat and the glasses uh, that said UFO on the hat? 
I don't know if I remember that, but I do remember the show. <laughs> I'm more of a movie guy, not so much a TV guy. <laughs> well, he he was on the History Channel on a show called UFO Hunters. I produce a show on, uh, and I'm part of the show as uh, on-air talent as well on uh, Monday nights at 8 p.m. on Futures Theater. So look forward to that, guys. I'm sure they're going to have a great guest tomorrow. Uh, Bill and Nancy Burns always puts on a, an excellent show. But you know who does a great show also? The guys following it right now. Tim Schwartz, Mike Mott. The Outer Edge is next. Guys, for Terry Wickham, the uh, guest of the evening, for myself and everybody else on PSN Radio, we'll see you next week right here on Inside the Jackal's Head. Listen to this great sound. Creepy. Love this music. (laughs) 